at the end of the pews that you can use. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that home with you as a gift from us. So it's Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Thank you, Chad. Uh, good morning, church. My name is Raul Luna. Obviously, I'm not Matt, right? in case you didn't know. I'm the missions director here at the well. Um, today's passage from Luke 7 uh, is going to give us through a couple of things. It's going to make us examine ourselves in terms of who is Jesus and how do we define Jesus? What is our identity in Jesus? And then how does Jesus begin to transform the identity of three individuals? in this passage. Um, this week I was teaching one of my favorite classes. Uh, it's a class on the formation of identity after, uh, during the colonial period of time in Latin America. Uh, the lecture only contains seven slides, but it takes about an hour and 45 minutes to go through. Uh, I'm not that great of a teacher, uh, but it's a really fun activity where we ask the student, what is your identity? Highlight a couple of traits that define your identity, and we go through the notion of identity. And some of those identities are really messy, right? Some of those are where you're trying to define it. Uh, some of those are ever-evolving, ever-changing. With the activity, uh, one of the aspects of the activity is also we go around the room, about 25 students, and we start saying, look, you can pick one trait of your culture or your identity, but you cannot repeat it. In other words, if you say, I'm from Puerto Rico, you cannot use country of origin. So we go around 25 times and you cannot repeat it. By the 24th, right, people are like scratching their heads. They can't think of any more identity markers. Uh, and that's where it gets a little bit challenging. But think about what it is your identity today. This morning, on a Sunday, February 4th, what is your identity? Take a couple of minutes or seconds to think about what defines your identity. If someone were to ask you this morning, what is your identity? How would you answer? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to make you do that, right? We're not in a class setting right now. But if I were, right, think about what would be the things that you will highlight. Think, the, think about the things that you will put out, out there first. What is your identity? And it's interesting that depending on the circumstances and depending where you are working or where you're moving, your identity can change, right? Depending on the environment that I am, I can select certain markers for myself, and I will have a slide on that very shortly. But I want you to think about how identity is defined. 
Identity is defined as conception of the self, a selection of physical, psychological, or emotional, or social, cultural attributes or a particular individual. Now, where it gets tricky is that that identity you select, you also have to throw it out. And you have to say, this is what I think I am, and other people are going to respond to your identity. Some people might agree or disagree. So this is where it happens when you say, I am from blah, 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 and people go, really? Right? What it means is that whatever you're throwing out there is not registering in the brain. And then they start asking questions like, really? You were born in the United States? Where are your parents from? Right? What they're saying is something is not right. So they try to dig a little bit deeper. Now, identity is shaped by a whole bunch of things. It could be social, cultural, economic, political. It could be as moral or spiritual commitments. Or it can be characterized as a nationality or ethnicity or racial category. In other words, you decide what that identity is. So I did that exercise for you this morning, right? What are the things that I would say? Well, I'm definitely a husband. Probably not a good one on most days, right? I'm a father. I'm a traveler. I love to travel. Now, there's certain things that I left out there because we didn't have the screen size, right? for it, but I would have been like, I am the Michael Jordan, the Salvadorian Michael Jordan, right? <laughs> you laugh, right? But your logic can testify to that later on, right? Or, you know, I could have said, I'm, you know, renowned for knowing about pupusas, right? I am the expert on pupusas at this church, right? There's different things I can choose in a different marker, right? Different aspects of that identity that can, we can highlight or in some cases hide, depending on the circumstances. So today, what I want you to think about, what is your identity, how identity is being shaped by your relationship with Jesus, and how identity should be rooted in Christ. The cornerstone of our faith is Jesus. But I bet if we did this exercise, Jesus would probably be number 20th in our identity, maybe not our first. So let's get into the Bible verse, and we'll see three individuals this morning and how do they relate to Jesus, but also what is their identity, and how that important begins to shape that relationship with them. So we're going to look at the first one, the centurion. We just read the Bible verses. And when we begin to divide up the, the, the preaching for this year, I jumped on it because there was a question mark on February 4th, and I was like, I need the time to prepare. Because uh, the other options were January 7th, and I was like, I just came back from Puerto Rico. There is no way I'm going to be preparing in Puerto Rico. So I chose to choose uh, to select uh, Luke 7. Now in Luke 7, we're going to begin seeing three different identities and different ways that Jesus responds to them. And what is important here is not necessarily who they think they are or other people think they are, but what Jesus sees in them. Now this is going to be extremely important because we don't see ourselves like Jesus sees us. We let our identity be shaped by what we have done or what we're feeling, or what are our circumstances. But this morning, I want you to begin to think about what that identity should look like when we're rooted in Jesus. Now, Luke decides, for whatever reason, not to put a name on the centurion. He omits the name. Why? Because the identity of the name is not important. What is important for us this morning is that Luke decides to highlight the title, the profession, the career of this soldier. 
Now, what is also interesting about this passage is that the centurion is not asking anything for himself. He's interceding for someone else. In verse 2, he says that he has a servant who is very sick and most likely would die. And this tells us something about the centurion as well in terms of what he valued the most. And how he was advocating or was asking for people to advocate on his behalf in terms of Jesus. Now, because the centurion had economic and social and political influence, he decides to recruit the elder Jews to come and lobby for Jesus. For Jesus. So look what it says in verse number 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded him with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Immediately we see how the elder Jews highlight what is important about the identity of the centurion. Not only is he influential, fear, powerful, a military person, but also the reason why they're advocating on behalf of him towards Jesus is because, quote-unquote, he is worthy. His status, based upon the Jews, determined his worth. Jesus, you must save him. If there's anyone here in Israel that needs to be heard, is this centurion. Why? Because he loves our nation and he has given a lot of money to the church. Does that sound familiar sometimes? When we ask for the time of the pastor, or when we began to say, he owes me, right? He owes me. He needs to be available to me 24-7. Do you know what I have done for this church? But it's not the centurion that is doing that. It's other people that see the identity of the centurion as someone that is worthy. Now, but who is the centurion? Centurion is a Roman soldier that has earned his position based upon bravery, and he has proven his worth in the military skills in battle. He was in charge of over 100 soldiers. To become a Roman centurion was awarded by the head of the legion. So this gentleman was a leader. He was wealthy. He was influential. But Jesus does not care about titles. He does not care about what we have done or what we can give. The other aspect that I'm interested in when we begin to look at this Bible verse is how the centurion seems himself. And we can see that in verses 7, 8, and 9. The centurion says, I'm not worthy for you, Jesus, to come to my house. I know, as I have people underneath me, just say the word and my servant will be saved. Humility is a key of the centurion. He knew exactly where he stood in relationship to Jesus. And I think many of us don't realize what is our position with Jesus. Sometimes our gifts and our skills and our positions and our wealth, we feel that Jesus owes us something. That he needs to listen to us. That he, he needs to heal us. He needs to heal our mother from cancer or save our children from Whatever it is that is going on with the child. And sometimes we're like the Jewish leaders. That we deem worth, who is worth of hearing the gospel? 
One of the things that breaks my heart when we're in the missions field is how Christians decide who's worthy to hear the gospel. We decide who is worthy to hear the gospel. We determine if it's too dangerous, we cannot go there. We need to have guarantees before we get on a plane to share the gospel. We need to know that we're safe before we go out and share the gospel. I've seen it in so many cases where we have been limited where our chances to preach the gospel because it's too poor, it's too rural, it's too ghetto, it's too whatever adjective you want to add there. We limit the opportunities where the gospel can penetrate based upon, quote-unquote, our safety. I have heard conversations with Christians that said the Muslims should not have access to the gospel. They should not be saved. Think about our political situation right now. Think about how we describe those individuals that don't think like us or don't have the same affiliations or political affiliations or the same values or whatever. We determine who has access to the gospel. Who is worthy to be saved. I have heard from individuals close to my family, long-time Christians, long-time leaders, when we have said we're going to go to the MS-13 territories in El Salvador and say, let them die because they're cockroaches. They don't deserve to hear the gospel. Who is the gatekeeper of the gospel? Who is worthy to hear the gospel? And that's in essence what the elders are telling Jesus. He deserves for you to hear him out. He loves our nation. He has built our synagogues. Let him be saved. We get to verse number 7. We see and we read that the centurion is saying, Therefore I did not presume for you, Jesus, to come to my house. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. Now what's interesting about this passage is how Jesus responds to the centurion. And the word that he uses is that he was marble at him. Would Jesus be marbled by our sense of entitlement? Would Jesus be marbled by our faith? Would Jesus be humble or be amazed by our humility? How we serve the orphans, the widows, the poor. We need to realize that Jesus is not attracted to titles. He's attracted to our heart. He's attracted to our humility and to understand that we need a Savior. And Jesus tells back the people that were there, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. It's the faith that activates the healing. It's the faith that recognizes that who is truly Jesus. Not the healer, but the Savior. Jesus is attracted to this centurion because he understood his position to the king and to the master. So the centurion is just one example this morning. Right? Do you relate to him or do you relate to the other individual we're going to see today? So Luke 7, 12, and 14, we see a widow. Once again, the names are not important, but the situation, the individual, the, her status is, it says, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. 
and considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the, law, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Who is this widow? We know from biblical times being a widow is someone that needs help. Someone that is desolate, someone that is in pain, someone that is needy. And in this case, not only she's a widow, but she just lost her son. Now, we can add little details that are not necessarily in the Bible. Let's say that that, that is the only son. Let's assume that he's not married, so therefore the descendants, the legacy is gone. The other thing that is interesting about this is that widow does not ask anything from Jesus. There is no relationship here where she sends someone to Jesus. It's Jesus seeing the situation. He saw, right? He felt compassion. He approaches the widow. Maybe the widow knows that who Jesus is. Maybe she knows that Jesus is in town. Maybe people tell her that there's Jesus. Go and ask. But she is too focused on her pain. She's mourning the loss of her child. And I don't know what, in essence, you are feeling this morning. Maybe you can relate to the widow. Maybe you have pain in your heart. Maybe there's so much trouble in your life that you cannot see that Jesus is right there. One of the things I want you to take out of the sermon today is that Jesus sees you. Jesus knows you. Jesus understands you. Jesus has compassion for you. There's no words of change. There is no sense of great faith. It was her status. It was her it was her brokenness that attracted Jesus to her. And Jesus did the miracle. Maybe you relate more to the last individual we're going to see today. Maybe you can't relate to the suffering. Maybe you can't you know, relate to the pain. Maybe you can't relate to the needy or being weeping or sorrow. But in Luke 7, 37, 39... There's another woman, no name. But what is highlighted over and over from verses 37 to the end is that this woman was a sinner. Not once, not twice, not three times, not four times. More than five times the word woman and sinner appear. Her identity is defined as someone that is sinning. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she, she is a sinner. That is the focus. She's a sinner. We don't know what type of sinner, we can assume. What is interesting also is what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't cast her out doesn't force her out, doesn't shun her, doesn't remove her from the house. He does the opposite. He uses her as an example and says, look at her deep. Look at how she's weeping. She's recognizing that I am the Lord. Her tears are washing my feet. Her hair are drying my feet. 
Jesus takes the focus out of the sin and focus on the attitude of the woman. This individual that was broken. This individual that recognized that she needed a savior. And Jesus was that savior. Jesus doesn't care for our sinful status. Whether you have sinned a little or a lot. He cares that you recognize, that you confess, and that you receive him as his Lord and Savior. And I think many of us can understand we're sinful. I think many of us can wrestle with our sinful nature, but it's to confess that we're sinners, to repent from being a sinner. Maybe that takes too much for some of us. Maybe you're sitting here with a lot of sin in your heart, in your thoughts, in your deeds. And maybe that is the obstacle that is preventing you from reaching God. But once again, Jesus is not interested in terms of how sinful you are. He wants individuals that can understand their brokenness, their sinfulness, the need for a Savior. Now, Jesus is many things for many of us, right? So if I had to ask you, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the prophet, the Messiah, the great teacher. That's what some of the words come out of Luke 7. But the focus is none of that. Luke 7 is telling us this morning that he can be our prophet. He can be our Messiah. He can be our healer. He can be our teacher. But most importantly, he is our Savior. That's what he wants us to recognize. Whether you're the centurion that doesn't need Jesus per se, or the widow that is too blind because she is filled of sorrow, or the woman that recognizes her sinful nature and is seeking forgiveness. And I think all of us at one time or another can recognize all three of those individuals in our life. Growing up uh, as a son pastor, it's very difficult to recognize our sin or admit that we're sinful, right? We have to live this perfect life and we cannot sin. And I remember many, many years ago, it was around 1999, the song Mercy Me came out. I can only imagine, right? We have heard it over and over. We can only imagine. So we received this tragic uh, phone call from California. Uh, the whole family flies out. My mom's only uh, sister had died very tragically. So the family flies out. And I remember you know, sitting in the pews. And the family's there. The, the body, I think, was there. I can't remember if it was or wasn't. And I remember just weeping and crying uncontrollably. Now, in parentheses, not even for my maternal grandmother, we were very close, I cried. Now, I'm that, not that I'm, you know, senseless or have, don't have a heart. It's just I knew that she was a great lady and she was being heaven. So I didn't have to cry. I was like celebrating the fact that she had died. But in this particular evening, I was weeping and crying. I remember sitting like it was aisle two or one. And my sister turns to me. She goes, be strong. We need to be strong for my mom. And I was like, leave me alone, right? I was just bawling and crying. And here's the thing. I was not crying for my aunt that died. I was crying because I had a secret sin that no one knew. 
And that particular moment, for whatever reason, it just all came out. Now, I didn't confess my sin in that particular moment, right? But the things that went in my mind at that particular moment is, how can I do that, right? Am I worthy of being, quote-unquote, a Christian? Would God forgive me? And I just wept and wept and wept. And that is what this lady is doing. She is crying because she recognizes how broken she is. There's no ego. There is no sense of what will people say. She knew she was coming into the Pharisee's house and she was going to be shown, she was going to be pointed out. She did not care. And this morning, before we take communion, Examine your heart. What are the things that are preventing you from confessing, repenting, accepting, recognizing Jesus as your Savior? What are the things that are creating obstacles and barriers for us to cry at the feet of Jesus and recognize that we are sinful? But by his grace and his mercy and his love, he's reaching out. He doesn't care our condition, doesn't care our status, doesn't care about our 401k, doesn't care about our dreams, does not care about anything. He cares about the fact that you need a Savior. A centurion, a widow, and a great sinner. All of them have an identity. But when Jesus met them, their identity changed. And that identity changed into eternity. Think about what is your identity. Think about how identity is being shaped and formed by your past, by some of the things you have done. But this morning, Jesus does not care. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. He sees you for who you are, a sinner in need of a Savior. Run to him. Be like that woman who sinned a lot. Repent, rejoice, and accept his grace. A couple of Bible verses before we move into communion that I want you to remember. Romans 5, 8 says, But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It didn't matter our status. It didn't matter the amount of sins that we had. He died for us. Ephesians 2, 8. For my grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. In verse 50, he said that this woman received faith or received salvation because of her faith. The centurion servant was healed because of his faith. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of all of our unrighteousness. Close their eyes. Let's come to him. This morning, but before we started, we confess our sins.
before we take communion, is a great opportunity just to recognize who is our Savior. Father, we sit here maybe with our brokenness, maybe with our sinful nature, maybe wrestling, Father, with our status and our position and our worth. Father, maybe we're Pharisees. Whatever identity we have, Father, let that identity be removed and that identity be transformed or replaced by you. The perfect the sinless, the worthy Father. Jesus, you are our Savior. Father, we come to you knowing that we need a Savior and we receive your salvation not because we earned it or we, or we are worthy of it, Father. We just receive it by grace. Father, anyone that is here this morning that is wrestling, that it feels unworthy. Meet them this morning, Father. As you met that widow, Father, you saw the brokenness, you saw the pain. She didn't say a word, and you ran to her, and you gave her compassion. You saw the faith of the centurion, that his servant was healed. You saw the brokenness and the humility of the sinful woman and you forgave her sin because of her faith. Thank you, Lord, that we have free access to you without anyone standing in the way. We can just claim your name above all names and receive your salvation by faith. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's take communion and rejoice in the fact that our identity is shaped in Jesus. Not on our sinful nature, not on our status or title. Let's rejoice in Him. <laughs>